Solomon's Temple and its Teachings. Part 4. Types of the Temple. Thomas Newbery. The Priests. The priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister unto me. And they shall stand before me to offer, bring near, unto me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God, Sovereign Lord Jehovah, they shall enter into my sanctuary, and they shall come near to my table to minister unto me, and they shall keep my charge, Ezekiel chapter 44 verses 15 to 16. These priests appear to be typical of those who believe in Jesus in the present dispensation, when Israel as a nation have gone astray from God. When they enter in at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments, verses 17, 18. In all their ministrations, whether at the altar or within the sanctuary, nothing of woolen is to come upon them. In the worship and service of the sanctuary above, there will be the absence of all that is carnal or exciting, all will be spiritual and holy. And when they go forth into the outer, outer court, even into the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments wherein they ministered, and lay them in the holy chambers, attached chambers. And they shall put on other garments, verse 19. As those who ministered in the court of the priests were required to change their apparel when they went out to the people in the outer court, even so the risen saints, the heavenly priesthood in their intercourse with earth during the millennial period, will not be seen in the same glory in which they minister in the heavenly courts above. No high priest is mentioned, the prince, not a king, takes a prominent part in providing the sacrifices, Ezekiel 45-46. The Lord Jesus will unite the kingship and high priesthood in his own Melchizedek office. The holy portion of the land. The land is mine, and ye are strangers and sojourners with me, says Jehovah to Israel, Leviticus chapter 25 verse 23. Moreover, when ye shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, ye shall offer an oblation unto Jehovah, a holy portion of the land, Ezekiel chapter 45 verse 1. This holy portion is 25,000 reeds square, or about 60 miles, and is divided into three parts. For the priests and sanctuary. The first portion, towards the north, is about 60 miles long and 24 miles broad. It shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, which shall come near to minister unto Jehovah, and it shall be a place for their houses, and a holy place for the sanctuary, Ezekiel chapter 45 verses 2 to 4. For the Levites, adjoining this portion is that of the Levites, the ministers of the house, about 60 miles by 24 verse 5. For the prince, on either side of this oblation for the priests, the Levites, and the city, the prince has his portion, east and west, extending as far as the portions for the tribes extend. The Millennial Division of the Land. Ezekiel 47-48. In the division of the land among the twelve tribes, Levi has no part, he has his inheritance in the holy oblation belonging to Jehovah. The Levites are typical of the church, who are fellow citizens of the saints, and of the household of God, heirs of God, and joined heirs with Christ. Seven of the tribes of Israel, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Joseph shall have two portions, Ezekiel chapter 47 verse 13, Reuben, and Judah, have their portion on the north of the holy oblation, and five tribes on the south, namely, Benjamin, Simeon, Isaac, Zebulun, and Gad. The sanctuary is thus in the very center of Emmanuel's land. Reckoning from the north seven tribes, the portion for the priests with the sanctuary in the midst is the eighth, reckoning from the south five tribes, which with the city portion and that of the Levites make seven. The priest's portion is again the eighth. In the very center of the sanctuary portion is the altar of burnt offering. When, in the millennial age, the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established upon the top of the mountains, Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 to 3, 66 to 23, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 16, and exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. 
then the altar in the midst of the land shall not only be God's center for Israel, but his center for worship for the whole earth, the Lamb on the throne, is, and ever will be. God's center for heaven and the universe. God will cause the Gentiles to bring from all parts gold, silver, etc., to make the place of his feet glorious, Isaiah chapter 60 verses 9 to 14. The city portion. Next to the portion of the Levites towards the south is the possession for the city, about 12 miles in breadth and 60 miles in length, the suburbs enlarge the city to a square of 5,000 reeds. In the city of David, where Solomon had his royal palace, will probably be the residence of the prince who will be the earthly representative of Messiah the king, Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, the center of government and rule. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem, Micah chapter 4 verse 2. The gates of the city are called after the names of the tribes of Israel, three gates northward, and three at the east, the south, and the west sides, Ezekiel chapter 48 verses 30 to 35, 12 gates. This city is literal, it may be instructive to compare with the symbolic city of the Revelation, the Holy Jerusalem, the emblem of the church in resurrection glory. The city of Ezekiel formed a square of 4,500 reeds, the city of Revelation is described as foursquare, the length, breadth, and height equal, it too, was measured by the reed. But the reed of Revelation is a golden one, the emblem of an estimate which is divine. Also twelve gates, according to the twelve tribes of Israel, Revelation chapter 21 verses 9 to 22. Concerning the earthly city it is said, the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there, Jehovah Shammah, Ezekiel 48 to 35. So, also, of the holy Jerusalem of Revelation it is said, the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. And they shall reign for ever and ever. The temple of Solomon filled with glory when God had planted Israel in the land which he had promised, and settled them there. David desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. No sooner was the house built and prepared according to the pattern, than the glory of Jehovah filled the house of God, 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 10 to 13, 2 Chronicles chapter 5 verses 11 to 14, 7, 1 to 4. There are three particulars to notice in connection with the glory filling the temple, first, the bringing in of the ark into its place in the Holy of Holies, and under the shadowing wings of the larger cherubim. In the ark we have seen a beautiful type of the person of our Emmanuel. God has given to his beloved son a central place of authority and glory. For him there was no place in his own world, or on the throne of his father David, but there was a place for him on high. To him God the Father said, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. When the Ark of the Covenant was brought into its proper place, the cloud filled the house of Jehovah. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Jehovah had filled the house of Jehovah. When the Lord Jesus came, after his resurrection, into the midst of the disciples. The doors being shut for fear of the Jews, he stood in their midst. On the first Lord's Day evening, and on the second Lord's Day evening, he takes his own proper place in the midst. Let us give the Lord Jesus Christ his proper place, gathering unto his name and around him now. Secondly, when Solomon had prayed, and the sacrifices were offered, the fire came down from heaven, and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Jehovah filled the house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of Jehovah upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement, and worshipped, and praised Jehovah, saying, For he is good, for his mercy, loving kindness, endures forever. The value and acceptability of the sacrifice upon the altar was attested by the fire descending and consuming it. So Christ, having presented himself as an offering and sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling savour, God the Father showed his acceptance thereof by raising him from the dead and setting him at his own right hand.
and also by the descent of the Holy Spirit, filling the Church of God with the glory of His presence, Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. Thirdly, after the ark was in its place, and the sacrifices had ascended as a sweet savour unto God, then, when the priests were come out of the holy place, it came even to pass. As the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking Jehovah, the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of Jehovah had filled the house of God. So now, if we would have the house of God filled with glory of God, we must observe the lessons here taught us, for these things are foundation principles. A crucified, risen, and glorified Christ, a Christ having his own proper place of authority, in gathering and rule, the hearts of his people as one in rendering thanksgiving, praise, and blessing. Then shall the glory of the presence of the Lord be known amongst us. The first disciples, Acts chapter 1 verse 2, had been gathered around his person, they were one in heart and mind, perfectly joined together. Determined to give the Lord Jesus Christ his own place, as David's servants were of one heart to make David king. Then we read, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. The glory of Jehovah and his presence was manifested when the divine eternal spirit came into the midst of the gathered disciples, filling all the house. And resting in tongues of fire upon each of them. Is not he, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is not he who sought of old the companionship of man still desirous of renewing his Edenic walks with man? Will he not walk with every Enoch who seeks to please God? If we make for him a sanctuary, a holy habitation, will he not dwell with us? If we are of one mind and one heart to make Jesus king, to accept his authority, and give him the glory due unto his name, will he not fulfill his own promise, and manifest himself to us? What we want in our assemblies is the realized presence of God in Christ, the glory of the Father in the person of the Son, manifested by the ungrieved Holy Spirit. As the quickener of dead souls and sanctifier of the believer unto increasing meetness for the glory yet to be revealed. Three things are essential to the manifested presence of God. The first is that we are all ready to hear and obey, able to say, Now, therefore, are we all here present before God, to hear all things that are commanded thee of God, Acts chapter 10 verse 33. To hear God's voice speaking to us from off the mercy seat, out of the holiest of all. Are we listening for the voice of God, desiring communion with God, who has said to the scattered ones, I will be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries whither they shall come, Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 16. We may find the presence of God wherever we are, where'er we seek him he is found, and every place is holy ground. The next essential is Jesus in the midst. The supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his own church. Do we recognize the Lordship of Christ? Further, there must be the unhindered power of the Holy Ghost. Is our ministry carried on, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but in the words which the Holy Ghost teaches? God is waiting to come in, Christ is willing to occupy his proper place. The Spirit of God has not lost his majesty and might, he is as ready as ever to take of the things of Christ, in the glory of the Father, and reveal them unto us. When the temple of God shall be erected in the millennial reign, when the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it, then shall the glory of God once more fill the house. Jehovah shall be in his holy temple, his glory shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. When we, as living stones, are builded together in resurrection perfectness a holy house for God, a habitation of God through the Spirit, then shall the presence of God and of the Lamb and of the Eternal Spirit fill it with everlasting glory. Turn to Revelation chapter 21 verse 22, to that wondrous description of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the church, the bride, the Lamb's wife, I saw no temple therein, for Jehovah God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it.
and the lamb is the light lamp thereof. Lamp is the word used in the original by the Spirit of God. The word, lamp, reminds us of those lamps which, supplied with oil, illuminated the sanctuary of old with brilliancy and light. So the glory of God will forever be seen in the face of Jesus Christ, manifested and made known by the eternal Spirit of our God. The presence of the Holy Ghost here on earth is a constant witness of the exaltation and glory of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Majesty on high, John chapter 14 verses 16 to 20. By the Pentecostal Spirit were all believers baptized into one body, and made to drink into one Spirit in union with the Head in glory, one Spirit with the risen Lord. Oh to realize this according to the prayer of the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 19, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole, every, family in heaven and upon earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, and length, and depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with, into, all the fullness of God. O oh, wondrous word! Can we be so filled? Filled into all his infinite, eternal, boundless love, like some tiny shell in ocean's depths, or like a little fish swimming in a boundless ocean. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, upheld by the power of omnipotence, supplied by the bounty of him whose fullness is inexhaustible, and whose love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost given unto us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. Answers to questions on points of interest connected with the temples of Solomon and Ezekiel. Given by Mr. Newbery in connection with his lectures. Is there a difference between the threshing floor, 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 24, and the place, 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 25? The price is said to be, 50 shekels of silver, in the one case, and, 600 shekels of gold, in the other. The threshing floor and oxen were bought for 50 shekels of silver, the ransom money of a hundred souls, see Exodus chapter 30 verse 13, their full legal value, meeting the requirements of law. This was the place for the altar, according to 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 25. But we further learn from 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 25 that David gave for the whole place or field 600 talents of gold by weight. This was the site of the temple. Silver, the emblem of redemption, was paid for the threshing floor connected with the altar and sacrifice. Gold, the emblem of glory, was given for the field connected with the temple and the glory. What would the value in English money be, of the enormous quantities of gold and silver prepared by David? 1 Chronicles chapter 22 verse 14. 100,000 talents of gold at 2,280,000 pounds The talent of 114 pounds equals 228 billion, and a thousand thousand talents of silver at 27,360 pounds The talent equals 27 billion together 255 billion 360 million pounds. Part of this silver and gold was used for the gold and silver vessels of the sanctuary, but by far the greater portion was employed, as we are informed in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 verse 4, to overlay, literally, to plaster, the walls of the houses, the stones being encased in solid silver, then overlaid with cedar or cypress, and afterwards overlaid with gold. The whole building, including the porch, roof, 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 4, walls, floor, posts, beams, and doors, 1 Kings chapter 6 verses 22 to 23, 30, was not gilded, but covered with gold, the gold being fitted upon the carved work, 1 Kings chapter 6, not obliterating, but setting forth the exquisite carving on the wood in surpassing splendor. The silver plastering of the stones tells of redemption, the living stones of the spiritual house being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
while the gold covering all faintly foreshadows the glory of God which the redeemed will forever share. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 11 the New Jerusalem is seen in resurrection perfectness and glory, having the glory of God, the city itself was pure gold. Like unto transparent glass, did the temple built by Herod stand on the site of Solomon's temple. When the Edomian king came to the kingdom, he found the temple erected in Ezra's time after the fashion and on the site of Solomon's temple, but inferior in splendor and glory. This did not meet his taste. He took it down, and on its site erected another temple, which was forty-six years in building. This was the temple which was in existence at the time of our Lord. It was made after his own design, and while, no doubt, he retained some parts of the original structure, as a whole it was entirely different from the Temple of Solomon. If we are to accept the testimony of Josephus and other writers, the Temple of Herod seems to have been built on a much larger scale and higher than the original. The stones of which it was built were white and wonderfully great, some say 25 cubits by 12 cubits. Whether we may take this as correct or not, it is certain, from the expression used by the disciples in Mark chapter 13 verse 1, that the stones used were conspicuous for their size. When it is said that Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, Acts 3, are we to understand that they entered as worshippers there? There is confusion in the minds of some regarding the place where our Lord and his disciples prayed and taught. Not being of the tribe of Levi, they could not enter into the court of the priests, nor draw near to the altar, nor enter the holy place. The Holy Ghost, in speaking of the temple, uses two distinct words in the original Greek. One is hieron, from hieris, sacred, which refers to the entire temple, its courts and other buildings, the whole external structure. The other word is naus, from nio, to dwell, and signifies the inner building, the holy and most holy places, the sanctuary. Where our Lord and his apostles prayed and taught was in hieron, the external courts alone. What temple is referred to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4, and they're called the temple of God. The fourth temple which will be built and in use, according to Daniel chapter 9 verses 26 to 27, 12 11, Matthew chapter 24 verses 15 to 22, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 8, and Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 to 2, and daily sacrifices offered on its altar, during the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. The prince who is the head of the Roman Empire of that time will confirm a covenant for one week, or seven years with the people of Israel, but in the midst of the week. At the end of three and a half years, according to the prophecy, he breaks the covenant, takes away the daily sacrifice, and sets up the abomination of desolation in the holy place. There is, therefore, a temple of God, which is shown in Revelation chapter 11 verse 1, and measured by John, and also an altar, recognized as the temple and altar of God, with a daily sacrifice which can be taken away. The Antichrist occupies the place of God, and, showing himself that he is God, and claiming all worship to himself then commences that period of unparalleled woe called, the Great Tribulation, such as never before has been on earth. Wherein do the types of the temple differ from those of the tabernacle? In comparing the tabernacle with the temple, we learn from the New Testament application that the tabernacle in the wilderness is a type of the church in the present dispensation. During the period of our Lord's sojourn on earth, he was the dwelling place of God with man. The word was made flesh, and t-a-b-e-r-n-a-c-l-e-d among us but that will not exhaust the full significance of the tabernacle type. It is further explained to us by that word, in whom Christ, ye also are builded together an habitation of God through the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22. Thus, the church on earth, in its wilderness condition, becomes a habitation of God, a sanctuary wherein he may dwell. The temple is another type of God's presence with his redeemed people. Ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you, 1 Corinthians chapter 3.
and again, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into an holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21. I take the temple, therefore, to be a type of the whole of the redeemed going on growing, living stones being added from time to time to the holy temple of the Lord, living stones, built up a spiritual house. And this not only in its present wilderness condition, but of all the redeemed is associated with the risen Christ in resurrection and heavenly glory, clothed upon with their house from heaven, the eternal glory of the redeemed. Monuments erected to the praise of God's redeeming grace and love. The temple described in Ezekiel will be an earthly reflection of all the redeemed in heavenly glory. The Holy Jerusalem of Revelation chapter 21 is an emblem of the church as the bride of the Lamb in resurrection and heavenly glory, the earthly reflection of which will be the literal earthly Jerusalem under the new covenant in the millennial rest. From whence was the water derived that was used in the temple? The laborious investigations of the persons employed by the Palestine Exploration Committee have discovered many extensive cisterns, series of arches, and watercourses under the vast temple platform upon which it stood. A special exploration of one about 45 feet deep, 63 feet long, and 57 feet broad, has been made. Full investigation would, doubtless, throw much light on the arrangements for the supply of water for the brazen sea, the lavas, and other uses of the temple. If the present time is the period of preparation, when will the building of the spiritual temple take place? The whole work of preparation belongs to the present time and scene. The time of the erection of the heavenly temple will be at the first resurrection when the Lord comes, when the dead in Christ, from Abel downward, shall rise first, and the living ones shall be changed and caught up. And all will together be built up as an everlasting monument of redeeming grace and love. What was the position of the two pillars, Jachin and Boaz? It is said in 1 Kings chapter 7 verse 21, he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple. But this should be rendered, by the porch. In harmony with this we read, in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 17, he reared up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left. In Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 49, we read, there were pillars by the posts, of the porch, one on this side, and another on that. Thus all these scriptures are found to be in harmony. What is the significance of the absence of the brazen sea and lavas in the description of the temple as given by Ezekiel? In connection with the temple of Ezekiel, neither brazen sea nor brazen lava are mentioned, the waters that issue from under the threshold take their place. These waters flow eastward from the right side of the house, at the south side of the altar, the exact position occupied by the brazen sea in Solomon's temple. These waters are emblematic of life in the spirit, in its origin and progress, deepening and widening as it flows, carrying with it and diffusing healing and life, verdure and fertility. This life, having its source in God, is spiritually and divinely pure, and needs no cleansing such as is typified by the lava or the brazen sea. The pure river of water of life proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 22 verse 1, is a figure corresponding to that of Ezekiel chapter 47. Its lowly and holy origin is set forth in its issuing from the threshold of the sanctuary, the sovereignty of God's grace, founded on the atoning work of Christ, is revealed in its proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Ezekiel chapter 47 gives the literal and earthly view of it, Revelation chapter 22 gives the spiritual and heavenly, and both are millennial. What is to be learned from the varied degrees of value of the materials used in making the vessels? All the vessels of the holy places within were of gold. The lampstands and tables for use in the side chambers were of silver. The vessels in the inner and outer courts were of brass. The iron was used to make nails for the doors and for the joinings, and the brazen vessels were cast in clay, 2 Chronicles chapter 4 verse 17. Thus we see a gradual decrease of value in order from within, gold, silver, brass, iron, clay. 
with this we may contrast the great image shown to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2 verses 31 to 35, head of gold, breast of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. In the decreasing value of the materials in the image we see the declension of authority originally received from God downward. While in the temple vessels we perceive the increase of the value and glory of the worship and service rendered as the worshipper draws nearer and yet nearer into the presence of God. What is the virtue of the sacrifices to be offered in connection with Ezekiel's temple, and of what are the feasts to be kept symbolic? As all the sacrifices offered previous to Christ's offering of himself were foreshadowings of the work to be accomplished on the cross. Even so will all the sacrifices to be offered on the millennial altar be commemorative remembrances of his one great sacrifice offered once for all, complete and perfect for eternity. In connection with Ezekiel's altar there is no mention of the evening sacrifice, that having been accomplished when Christ offered himself on Calvary, nor is there any mention of the Day of Atonement being observed in the future. That having had its answer when Christ entered into the holiest with his own blood, once for all. Likewise are the feast's remembrances of grace and glory. The Passover is the memorial of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, Exodus chapter 12, it is also a memorial remembrance of Christ, our Passover sacrifice for us, as the Lord's Supper is in this dispensation. The Feast of Tabernacles, or Booths, was a memorial of Israel's wilderness wanderings, Leviticus chapter 23 verses 39 to 43, it is also named the Feast of Ingathering, at the year's end, Exodus chapter 34 verse 22 and was a foreshadowing type of millennial rest and restoration which Israel will be then enjoying. It is specially worthy of notice that there is no mention made of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, which is typical of the present dispensation and having its fulfillment now. Who is the Prince, mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 46 verse 12, who prepares a voluntary burnt offering? This Prince is evidently a lineal descendant of the Royal House of David, in whom the promises concerning the Kingdom will be literally fulfilled. He is not said to be the King. Messiah is King, and the Prince appears to be his earthly representative. He is permitted to sit in the porch of the outer east gate, and to eat bread before Jehovah, Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 3. The priests prepare his burnt offering and peace offering, he being of the royal and not the priestly line, though he worships at the threshold, does not enter into the court of the priests as a worshipper there. Is the new Jerusalem as seen by John in Revelation chapter 21 a figure of heaven, or of the earthly Jerusalem during the millennium? It is necessary to a right understanding of scripture to distinguish between figurative and emblematic or symbolic language. The language used by the Apostle in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10, 12 22, is figurative, whereas the structure of the book of Revelation is emblematic. The truth is made known, as we are told in Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, by signs or symbols. The city which Abraham looked for, and which we too are expecting, is a figurative representation for a fixed heavenly habitation, a contrast to the pilgrim, earthly condition. The Holy Jerusalem of Revelation chapter 21, is an emblem of the bride, the Lamb's wife. The resurrection body of the saint is compared to, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. A city is a collection of houses, and as the many members of Christ form one body. What more appropriate emblem of the bride, the Lamb's wife, can we conceive, when each individual member will be clothed upon with his house from heaven, than that here employed? The city described in Ezekiel is the earthly Jerusalem, the metropolis of the nation of Israel, when brought into possession of the land, during the millennium. This city is literal, and not symbolic, as the city of Revelation chapter 21. The temple of Ezekiel is situated in the midst of the priest's portion, which is distinct from the city, while of the holy Jerusalem it is said, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The redeemed in glory dwell in God, and God dwells in them.